Well, the testimonies of the waters of baptism are, are precious and sweet to us. Have you got one more sermon in you tonight? Can you do it? Don't disappoint me here. I'll do my part. Well, we just sang on the concept of waiting on the Lord, and that's what we want to talk about tonight, where we continue considering what it means to wait on the Lord in our series, Strength in the Desert, to be in a, a position of suffering in which solutions seem to escape you, and maybe you're having to walk through a time in life waiting on something in particular, and that when weeks turn into months and months turn into years and years turn into decades, you may come to the conclusion, wait a minute, I don't think God's going to fix this in this lifetime. Well, one key aspect of waiting that I think is so difficult and perhaps the most difficult is that waiting means that God is in control and you're not. That's what makes it hard. So what do we do with those things that we cannot control? Now, just to give you a little hope here, at the end of our time this evening, I'm going to give you a a very simple application, but I think it's so powerful and and such an expression of faith in the Lord, it's going to seem obvious by the time we get to it. But I'm praying that your groundedness in the Lord, your, your, the bolstering of your faith will enable you to walk with him in contentment. So we'll do that at the end, and I think you'll find it simple by the time we understand what we're understanding tonight. And so to instruct our thinking, I want to turn our attention to the minor prophets, to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, the very end of the book. We'll begin in chapter 1 and then go to chapter 3. Now, to be fair with you, I have preached from this text before. It's intentional that I return here. This is such a key text in terms of of theology, in terms of worship, in terms of God's workings with Israel. Uh, Theologically, Habakkuk gives us a right understanding of really the, the massive scope of the sovereignty of God, that God will do what he will, when he will, how he wills, with whom he wills, and why he wills. And Habakkuk is very clear about this. It's key for us in terms of our worship, Habakkuk reminds us that God rightly engenders fear and terror if you oppose him and that his his sovereignty, especially when he's doing things that you wouldn't wish for, that his sovereignty ought to provoke you to humble adoration, to worship. And then it's key for us in terms of God's working with Israel. Habakkuk falls in line with the rest of the minor prophets who consistently teach that God rebukes faithless Israel with punishment, and yet he will be faithful to restore her. And so Habakkuk, along with the other minor prophets, are are so key for our confidence in the Lord that we have faith that those that God has chosen will never fall from grace permanently, and that for us as believers in Christ, God's character is completely reliable. That as Philippians 1 says, he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And so Habakkuk is just rich for us in these areas of theology and worship in in Israel. I absolutely love this text. I fell in love with it in seminary. I find myself gravitating toward it regularly. This isn't the first time I've preached this text. It's not the last one I will preach the last time I'll preach this. So to understand really the context here though, we need to go back in time to about 605 BC. The kingdom of Israel has been divided because of unfaithfulness to God about 115 years earlier. The northern kingdom of Israel was decimated. Most of her inhabitants were carried off by the Assyrians. And now in the southern kingdom under King Jehoiakim, the prophet Habakkuk is witnessing social chaos, moral chaos, religious chaos, Israelites breaking their covenant with God in countless ways. It's just just 
every man for himself, spiritually speaking. And so Habakkuk makes a complaint to God in the form of questions. And we see this in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Follow along with me. Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And so Habakkuk wants God to deal with wickedness in the southern kingdom of Judah, wickedness in Jerusalem. But God's answer is going to shock him. The, the answer is something Habakkuk has no control over. It is an answer to prayer, and it's the very last thing that Habakkuk wants. As a matter of fact, God's answer is so disturbing to Habakkuk that he becomes instantly physically ill. And yet he determined to trust the Lord and to be content with that which he could not control. Now we're going to read the end of the story first, then we'll back up and see how Habakkuk arrived at this point. So turn with me now to chapter 3. And look with me at verse 16. This is the end of the story and our text for this evening. Habakkuk 3, beginning in verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will wait, quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So how did we get here? Well, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, God answers Habakkuk's questions. He says, essentially, yes, I will deal with the wicked. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, I think will invade. They're dreaded. They're fearsome. He describes them with their swift horses, their fierce warriors, their love of violence. They laugh at kings. They devour entire cities. Just to help you understand how fierce they were in the 620s B.C., Assyria was losing its grip on a lot of its territory while this this fierce Aramaic tribe, the Chaldeans, were growing in strength. The Chaldeans eventually took over Babylon. They took independent control of Babylon under Nabopolassar in 626. He would establish what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire to give to his son, Nebuchadnezzar. And under the command of the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonian army grew deadlier. They defeated the Assyrians in a major battle at Nineveh in 612. And now control of the entire region, all the way from Egypt to Syria and Babylon was at stake. And there was all kinds of of unrest. And as Babylon gained ground and the Assyrians lost ground, Judah is now drawn into the conflict because between Egypt and Syria, guess who's stuck right in the middle? The little old Israelites. They're right there. So they're right literally on the battlefield. And they would battle at various times unsuccessfully, either with Egypt and Babylon. Every once in a while, it was just sort of a habit, go out and lose a battle to one of those and then come back home because they were right in the middle. Seven years later, when Egypt was trying to help Assyria defend itself, Nebuchadnezzar crushed Assyria and Egypt all in one battle, the Battle of Carchemish, very famous ancient battle. 
And now Babylon was essentially unstoppable. It's very likely that it's right at that time that Habakkuk received his oracle from God. The horrific fate of Babylon's enemies had spread. Habakkuk was filled with terror at the prospect. Chapter 3, verse 16 says this. God's answer is, yes, I see the injustice in my people, so Babylon is coming. Habakkuk asked God to take care of the sin in Judah, but he wasn't asking for a foreign invasion. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, Habakkuk acknowledges that God is the Holy One with the right to do as he pleases. But he does have a valid question. His question basically is, why would you let a nation with much greater wickedness, the Babylonians, harm a nation more righteous than they? I mean, we, you know, we don't have our act together, but we're not Babylonians. I mean, we've gone astray, but the star worshipers, really? They're going to come and decimate us? And in chapter 2, God answers once again, and he says in verse 3, yes, many things must happen to Judah because of her unfaithfulness. And yes, I am raising up the Chaldeans as my instrument of justice, but wait, that's not the end of the story. And in the key verse of the whole book, chapter 2, verse 4, paraphrasing the Lord, "I, I know that the soul of Babylon is puffed up and proud, but the righteous, those in Judah who love me, and worship me and strive to obey me, they shall live by their faith. They shall live. And then in the rest of chapter two, God pronounces terrible judgment on Babylon. He promises Babylon in chapter two, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that God will take them down, but not before they accomplish their purpose at God's hand in disciplining Judah. And so Habakkuk chapter 3 is a prayer song, essentially. It's the song of Habakkuk in response to what he's heard from God. He prays for God to be merciful even in the midst of his wrath. He exalts the power of God. He celebrates the loving protection of God for the faithful in Israel. And now in our text tonight, in verses 16 through 19, Habakkuk gives this summary. He summarizes the entire encounter with God from beginning to end. And his response of contentment with what is going to happen. Now, Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, is technically in the biblical genre of prophecy, but Habakkuk is very unique in that there's very much a narrative feel to it. It feels like a story. And the basic components of narrative literature in Scripture is that there is a a progression from one point to another, like any story. Sometimes that progression is complex. Sometimes it's simple. But the simple storyline is that there is, in narrative literature, a problem, a turning point, and a resolution. And so that's exactly what we see here in these last four verses. So let's just follow the story and use those narrative markers to guide our way. First, we'll look at Habakkuk's problem. Then we'll look at Habakkuk's turning point. And then we'll look at Habakkuk's resolution. First, Habakkuk's problem. Verse 16, he says, I hear in my body trembles my lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me it's very appropriate to translate the very first part of the verse in the past tense when i had heard this is appropriate since this is hearkening back to chapter one when god gave his first answer that the babylonians are coming and habakkuk had a physical reaction He said, my body trembles. It can also be translated, my stomach hurt. How many of you here have ever had terrible news and the first thing that happens is you get a stomach ache? Sometimes you say, I have a pit in my stomach. 
It's a visceral reaction to intense and sudden emotion. He said, my lips quiver at the sound. The sound, at what sound? The sound of, of God pronouncing judgment. And God even speaks of the war horses of Babylon. And certainly you could, you could picture them coming across the plains toward Jerusalem and hearing that thundering. And then my lips quiver. This is a picture of fear, of trying not to cry like a scared little boy. He couldn't control how his body reacted. And he says, rottenness enters into my bones. In other words, his joints feel like they're going to give way. He can't stand up. His legs are trembling. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, a man's bones symbolized his strength, but they can also symbolize emotion with unspeakable grief. David says in Psalm 6, Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. It's very interesting that just a moment earlier, Habakkuk was speaking to God in the strength of the righteous indignation of a prophet of God. God, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. What are you going to do about it? And in the space of seven verses, it took God, I've timed it, 45 seconds to reduce Habakkuk to being on the verge of physical collapse. This is the reaction that Habakkuk had. What? You're going to topple Jerusalem? My home? Your beloved city? Will any of us live? And maybe he's thinking, will I live? This is terrible news. Now, looking back, we know precisely what would happen just a few short years later. After defeating the Assyrians and the Egyptians at Carchemish in 605, Nebuchadnezzar moved his forces down to the western edge of Syria and Palestine, and he began establishing a presence there just to say, hey, I'm here, I'm not going away. And he put, started putting lots of pressure on Judah. And after a series of short-lived revolts by Jehoiakim and then Zedekiah, Judah was crushed in three stages, each of them progressively worse until the best men and women of Judah were captured and most of the rest were killed. Jerusalem was burned, the temple was destroyed, and the land was laid waste. So this is the problem. Babylon is coming. Habakkuk is sick about it. But there is hope. In Habakkuk 2, God said that he would eventually bring restoration. Babylon would be judged. And we know from Ezra and Nehemiah that someday a righteous remnant would return. They would come back and rebuild Jerusalem. And now that Habakkuk knew what was going to happen, he begins to demonstrate faith. And that brings us to Habakkuk's turning point. His turning point we find in the last third of verse 16. Yet... I will wait quietly, quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In verse 17, though the fig tree should blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. He says, I will wait quietly. I will quietly wait. Now, it would be accurate to expand that translation based on the Hebrew, to say, I will wait with an attitude of restfulness. I will be restful. What is he waiting for? It says in the end of verse 16, for the day of trouble to come upon people who will invade us, for judgment to come to Babylon. But guess what, Habakkuk? It's not going to happen in your lifetime. It will not happen while he's alive. Now, we will see this happen in Daniel chapter 5, decades after Habakkuk, the king of Babylon, Belteshazzar, he's holding a feast for a thousand of his noblemen. They use the gold and the silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken in 586 from the temple in Jerusalem, and they praised their gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone with them. 
And suddenly the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the wall. You know the story from Daniel 5. And the now elderly Israelite prophet Daniel carried off way back in Habakkuk's time was summoned to interpret the writing. And Daniel condemned Belteshazzar's pride, his idolatry, and he interpreted the message. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And literally, while Daniel was reading those words, the Medes and the Persians had snuck into the city and issuing a surprise attack. They kill, killed Belteshazzar and they took over Babylon. But Habakkuk won't live to see this. And so in verse 17, he gives an exclamation of exactly how patient he's going to be by means of the strength of the Lord. Verse 17 basically says, even though all of these things I'm about to list will happen, I will rejoice in the Lord. Then we get this series of images, and these images are not picked at random by Habakkuk. They really have a dual significance. First of all, these images in verse 17, they represent the physical reality of what an invading army would do, and in fact, what Babylon did. It's the picture of complete devastation of the land, complete devastation of the economy. It was not uncommon to not only kill or capture the citizens, but to cut down the fruit trees, to burn the crops, to kill the livestock, to do everything possible to literally disintegrate a society. It was the ancient version of a nuclear bomb going off. That's what Babylon intended to do. It is, by the way, precisely what God had told Israel to do to her enemies when God was giving Canaan to them. So there is the physical reality. These are things that are going to happen. But there's a second significant portion to this. Each of these images would have a specific spiritual significance, a spiritual connotation to the Israelite, just as images have meanings to us. And so it not only was the the physical decimation, but it was the spiritual lack of blessing, the spiritual cursing by God. And so he says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Isaiah 36 speaks of being able to eat from your own fig tree as a sign of settled peacefulness, a a removal of conflict. One of the houses I grew up in, we had a giant fig tree in the backyard and in the summertime, the leaves were like this big and it just hung down because we never trimmed it or anything. It was like our own little fort. And my brother and I would just go inside this thing and we had these little wooden stools in there and when the figs were blossoming, we would just stay in there and make ourselves sick with these things. Just eating and eating and eating and then crawling out from the shade and just enjoying that time. It's to, to have your own fig tree was glorious. It says that I'm at peace. Blossoming trees were signs of God's blessing. You just, you just wait for it to grow and you go pick it and enjoy it. And so a fig tree that's cut down or not bearing fruit, this was a sign of God's displeasure. He says, if there's no fruit on the vines, even just a quick survey of the Old Testament tells anyone that the grapevine is a huge part of Israelite life and in fact, often an image for the very land itself. If you've driven through the parts of central California that have these glorious vineyards, it's just, there's nothing like it. It says abundance, it says fruitfulness, it says joy. Isaiah chapter 5 presents a parable of a vineyard and the destruction of that vineyard is the picture of God's judgment, of his displeasure, his lack of favor. 
But even more importantly, God made the promise to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, verse 30. He said that if she did not obey the Lord her God, quote, you shall plant a vineyard, but you will not use its fruit. The fruitless vineyard or no one left to enjoy it would evoke in the Israelites' mind a clear picture of the judgment of God. Habakkuk says, if the olive tree fails... Think about how many times the image of olives, olive branches, olive trees, olive oil comes up in Scripture. It's, it's everywhere. It's a big part of Israelite life, of their culture, of their economy. Olives and olive oil, were, they were core commodities for Israel. In Scripture, the olive tree was an image of blessing, of goodness, of wholesomeness. The psalmist in Psalm 52.8 describes how safe he feels because of God. He says this, As for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God because he's safe. Very familiar picture to us. Psalm 128 says that a blessed man is one with a wife like a fruitful vine and children like olive plants around the table. And so to have the olive trees empty, to have them cut down is a devastating thought. Habakkuk says, if the fields yield no food, and this is huge, Because the fields are the last thing that you ever want to see go in an agrarian society. In Deuteronomy 26, when the Israelites were getting ready to take Canaan as God had instructed, God gave them instructions concerning the Canaanite fields. He said, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. And they were to take this in a basket and bring it to the priest and declare that this produce is a sign that they are here because of the goodness and the kindness of God. And so when the fields are empty, the goodness and the kindness of God has gone. It's gone. When the Israelite pictures a field with no food, they understand that God's hand of kindness has now been replaced by his hand of justice to a people who continue to rebel. Habakkuk says, even if the flock be cut off from the fold, the flock was the means of living. They provided meat, they provided wealth, they provided clothing. I mean, wouldn't it be neat if you could take a pile of money and just go take it out in a field and next year there's double that amount? That's what a flock did. It was a great means of wealth, but more significantly, the the flock could refer to the people themselves. This picture is all through the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah was warning Judah at the same time as Habakkuk. They lived at the same time. God wants Judah to repent, but he knows that they won't. And so God says in Jeremiah, my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. The coming Babylonian invasion would result in the death of of many and the captivity of many, the flock is cut off. And Habakkuk says, even if there be no herd in the stalls, in numerous places in the Old Testament, the seizing of cattle, of the livestock, was a sign of God's displeasure. When God instructed Israel to judge the city of Ai, God told them to take all the cattle, judge it. When King David was told by God to fight the Philistines in First Samuel 23, David won a great victory by slaughtering the men and according to God's decree, seizing their livestock, saying, you're done, you don't, you're not here anymore. And so Habakkuk has given this laundry list, this comprehensive list of all the terrible things that are coming at the hands of the Babylonians and he'll have to wait through this destruction, through the coming acts of God who enforces his covenant with his people. 
This is such a core issue for us in living a life of faith. That is the issue of waiting. I think that the essence, the very center of living a life of faith very much is the ability to wait and to be content while we wait. This is the struggle that we are all given from the hand of God. There's nobody here who isn't waiting on something. All of you are waiting for something right now. That is the life of faith. And listen, to wait on the Lord is a gift from God. It is absolutely a gift. Now, you might say, wait a minute. That's not what I wanted to hear because it doesn't feel very gift-like, does it? But what would happen if the Lord didn't make you wait? You know what you would be like? You would be shallow. You would be selfish. Your worship would be always all about you and none about him. If every time you made a request in prayer, God answered immediately, you wouldn't ponder the depths of his wisdom when he says no or when he says not now or when he says, what are you talking about? You wouldn't ponder him. If you received immediate relief from every problem or trial, you would not keep travailing in prayer. You would not sweat in prayer. You would not beg God in prayer if he never made you wait. Now, we rejoice in the times that God answers our prayers immediately. I've experienced that numbers of times in my life, and it's, it's really a phenomenal feeling. But if you're honest, that's not usually how God operates. We cherish those because they're few and far between. If God always answered every prayer immediately, it would reduce us to self-serving, self-focused people who operate God like he's a machine to dispense goods at our pleasure. And that's not who God is. And so in God's marvelous wisdom and to never let us forget that he is God, he makes us trust him, he makes us wait. Sometimes in the darkness, sometimes in the difficulty, sometimes in pain. We rejoice when God answers prayers quickly and we should ask him to do so, but much of the time we're exhorted to wait. Now, I've asked myself this question for years and read a little bit and searched the scriptures and I was trying to figure out why is it that waiting is so difficult? Why is it so hard? And sometimes waiting is okay. When I go out with my wife on a date and she says, uh, I want to go into this store and I know that she's going to be an hour and a half in there and I've got a good book. Waiting is fabulous. It's great. It's terrific. It's a break. It's wonderful. But when we're waiting on the Lord, why is that so hard? Well, I think we could show from Scripture that we're very sensitive to something, and that is the passage of time. We're sensitive to this. We've only got a few decades on this earth, and we're very poignantly aware of how quickly it goes by. So the thought of waiting a year, waiting a decade, or 30 years, that can be overwhelming to us. I mean, listen, you can look in the mirror, and you can see things on your body that have eroded, decayed, and changed in the past year. We're sensitive to the passage of time because we have so little of it. But could I say this, that for the believer in Jesus Christ, time is not your enemy. Time is your servant. Time is your servant. Think differently. With the passage of time, you become more like Christ. You know God better. You grow in wisdom. You get closer to being perfected. You get closer to heaven. One of my greatest joys as a believer is to know our oldest saints who with a smile and a twinkle in their eye say it could be tomorrow. Time is on their side. 
In reality, why should I have anxiety just because time is passing? I have eternity. And this is what is so dangerous and so horrible about so much of American evangelicalism that says that Jesus and God is all about giving you a good life right now. That, that your walk with the Lord is about making things good now. Really, what if you don't have legs? What if you don't have a lung? What if you don't have this or don't have that? Then you are forced to have a more eternal view. But the view that says, my eternal life started the moment I got saved. I just had this one little detail of dying and going to heaven and being resurrected. But God's plan for you, listen, don't, don't restrict it to this little lifetime here. This is just the preamble. This is just the opening. I have eternity. And in the meantime, Psalm 123 verse 2 says that our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. When? Hey, whenever he wants is fine. Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter that tells the story of the greatest men and women of faith in the Old Testament of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and many more. What was it that made them worthy of honor? What was it that made them described as having great faith? Hebrews eleven thirteen says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. I love that idea. That whatever it is you're waiting for, you see it down the road and you say, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I know that the Lord's going to be faithful. I know that the Lord will bring all things to a resolution. Hello, answer the prayer. You're really, really far away, but I'm just saying hello because I'm going to see you maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe in a thousand years, but I will see you. What a great concept to, to wave hello to that answer. Those saints in Hebrews 11 were great because they could wait. And when we're waiting on the Lord, we find ourselves in a place of such complete and and complex dependence on him that when you break through the pain of waiting, especially when your circumstances haven't changed, when you break through that pain, you seek and you find contentment that is nothing short of amazing. And like Habakkuk, we have a problem. Our faith in the Lord is to be content with what we cannot control that is, becomes our turning point. Well, what's the resolution? Well, let's see Habakkuk's resolution. Now, the resolution of Habakkuk's story is not that all the pieces fall together in his lifetime. Oh, look, a nuclear bomb just fell on Babylon. Great, everything's going to be okay. The resolution isn't something that happens to him. The resolution literally is his own resolve, his own determination, his own decision that even though the Lord will allow dreaded circumstances, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This first word in verse 18, yet, this is the crux of the whole book. This is the theology of Habakkuk right here. This is everything. This is the resolve of Habakkuk to rejoice in the Lord. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Literally, I will shout for joy to the God who causes my salvation. And take joy, to shout for joy. This is an imperfect verb. It means he's going to do it over and over and over again. This isn't one really good prayer time where a tear comes down his eye and says, everything's fine now. And the next day he goes back to being worried and having his legs tremble and his lip quiver. This is, I will rejoice Again, and again, and again, and again. How long? 
Verse 16, until the day of trouble comes upon the people who invade us. When's that going to happen? After he's dead. Therefore, he says, I will rejoice. I will shout for joy until the day I die. Now, what is the salvation he's speaking of? This is a direct reference to the key verse in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous will live by his faith. The New Testament quotes this verse three times in Romans 1, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 10. And in all three cases, it speaks of the gospel that it is only by faith in Jesus Christ in full belief in the substitutionary death that pays for your sin and mine and in his resurrection, which opens the door for me to live forever, that I can be saved out of my sin and born again. Means that every time. But stay back in 605 BC for a moment. The New Testament does not change the meaning of Old Testament text, but it does add layers of depth and understanding to it. But stay back in 605 BC. When the Israelites heard Habakkuk say, the righteous will live by his faith, an Israelite wasn't saying, oh, that means that Jesus is coming in 600 years, is going to die on the cross, and I'm going to be saved from my sins. That's not what he was hearing. Habakkuk wrote this oracle to be heard, to be read by the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem just a few years before the Babylonians were coming. And so when God says the righteous will live by his faith, he's simply saying that for those who worship me, those individuals who have loved me, who have kept my law out of love, who have kept my covenant, you will survive. You will live. God is the God of salvation to those who worship him. Remember, in the Old Testament, the majority of references to salvation simply speaks of surviving something, of living through a crisis, deliverance from real enemies and out of real catastrophes. Now, that's just the pure kind of earthy understanding, but certainly living by faith goes well beyond simple survival. The righteous are trusting God to do whatever he must do, leaving the results in his hands, even if their own lives are in peril. The righteous would certainly trust God like Job, who said in Job thirteen fifteen, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And so the righteous Jews, such as Habakkuk, he's, he's trusting the Lord. He's determined to place his faith in God and worship God with a view toward the big picture that God is faithful to those who love him. Now, for us, we have the joy and the advantage of being New Testament believers. We have the New Testament. We have the ultimate big picture understanding. All Habakkuk had was God's promise that someday God was going to crush Babylon. That's all he had. And based on that knowledge and that knowledge alone, he determined to trust the Lord. But what do we have? We have so much revelation If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your future is bright, it's secure. God is going to conform you to be just like Jesus. He's probably using this time of waiting for that very purpose. God himself is preparing a wonderful eternal home for you. You're going to get a brand new body. You're going to live and enjoy perfect fellowship with every believer from every age for all eternity. You'll enjoy heaven that will be sinless and pain-free You'll have eternity to know and to worship and bask in the glory of God as you see him face to face. Habakkuk didn't have any of that knowledge. You have it all. Your future is beautiful and it's worth waiting for. You know what I've seen in believers who have broken through their time of waiting to just be content with whatever the Lord has? You see what one writer called a divine heavenly whatever. The divine heavenly whatever is, well, the Lord's really crushing you here, whatever. 
your life is really quite terrible. Whatever. It doesn't matter. It's going by. Look, another hour has gone by since you've started complaining to me. I am going to heaven. I'm an hour closer to heaven. Whatever. What a great attitude that whatever the Lord does, bring it on because I know the end game. I know what's going to happen. But what was Habakkuk's resolve? What was his resolution? It's very simple. His resolve was to demonstrate contentment by worshiping. He was going to be a worshiper. In 319, Habakkuk says, God, and you'll notice that it's in all uppercase letters, God, Yahweh, the Lord, Adonai, is my strength. Adonai, Lord, Master, the one in charge. This is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Speaks of God being master and in control and supremely sovereign. It's the only time Habakkuk uses this term and it's very significant here. It is his statement of recognition that God, you are the master and I will issue a divine, heavenly whatever. His whatevers are in verse 17. Whatever happens... And his master is the source of his strength. And Habakkuk ends this prayer song with one of the most picturesque images in the entire book. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is a word picture to describe the confidence that Habakkuk has in God. It's the same word picture, by the way, that David uses in Psalm 18, verse 33. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. Have you ever seen a deer handle rough terrain? In January, our family was driving through Arizona and we stopped to take a hike through a desert trail. I grew up in Arizona, so I said, we got to hike through a desert trail. That's, that's what you do here. And so we were in this narrow valley between two really st- tall, steep hills and almost cliffs and just walking through this little canyon here. And southern Arizona is famous for mule deer. And we looked up to our right, and at the very top, you can see this, this little bitty mule deer just kind of staring at us. Rocks, cactus, gravel everywhere. Joel climbed that hill. It took forever for him to get up, and, the, and that little deer is, is up there. And all of a sudden, that deer just leaped forward right towards us. And this thing is far away, like several hundred yards away. And she goes rock to rock to rock to gravel right over this bush to rock to rock coming right at us and literally just shot right by us across the path, keeps going up the next hill, rock to rock to rock, path to path, gravel to gravel. And literally in seconds, I think maybe 30 seconds elapsed from top of that hill to top of that one. And then she looks back at us just kind of like a, can you do that? It was phenomenal. I'll never forget that. In the midst of rocks, cactus, stickers, steep hills, this mule deer just confidently, listen to this, used the obstacles as things to stand on. And in fact, that was the same desert hike that my son Joel said that we should do a series called Strength in the Desert. So here we are. How do you stand on top of your obstacles? How do you leap from obstacle to obstacle? according to Habakkuk, by worshiping, by worshiping. This is the picture of the heart of Habakkuk. He is sure of his God. He's gracefully bounding on the high places of the joy of his God, delighting in the Lord. And what I love about this is that the situation didn't change. Nothing changed. The Babylonians are still coming, but how is Habakkuk different? 
Well, compare verse 16 with 18 and 19. When he heard the judgment of God, his lips quivered. Now his lips rejoiced in the God of his salvation. When he heard the judgment, rottenness entered into his bones. Now God is my strength. When he heard the judgment, his legs trembled beneath him. And now he's spiritually sure-footed and strong like the deer that runs the trail and leaps from rock to rock to rock. All the weakness that his body showed in visceral response to the judgment of God is now replaced by spiritual strength and vigor because he's determined to worship. And how do we know this? There's this little parenthetical phrase at the end to the choir master with stringed instruments. This translation is intended to emphasize that Habakkuk has determined to turn this oracle to God to turn it into a worship song, to turn it into a song of worship. But there's one more little subtlety here. The Hebrew says, literally, to the choir master with my stringed instruments. There's personal involvement here. Habakkuk, the prophet of God, would respond to his time of waiting and confidence by worshiping God musically with his own stringed instruments. Apparently, he's a musician of some sort. While I wait, he says, dig out my violin. Get out the instruments. We're going to sing to the Lord. We're going to play a song to the Lord. He can't change what's coming, but he can be content with with what he cannot change. Now, I told you I'd give you a simple way to work this idea out. It's simple, but I, I think it's so powerful because it's a tangible expression of trust and contentment in the Lord. Whatever it is you're waiting for, whether it's physical health, a restored relationship, even something that won't be resolved in this lifetime, all those situations, listen, they have components to them. They have parts to them. For example, if you're praying for a relationship to be restored, there are parts to this. You may be struggling with bitterness and resentment because of this situation. That's one part. You may have responded poorly with with coolness or rudeness even. That's another part. This person is angry with you. That's another part. So there's components to this. So what do you do with those component parts? Very simply, you categorize them into two sections. Those things you can do something about and those things you cannot control. So this person is angry with you. You can't control how someone else feels toward you, how they respond. Every person is accountable to God individually for their response. Listen, as a pastor, I've seen people be so very gracious and kind. It seems that there's almost nothing I could do to irritate or aggravate a person. On the other hand, I've also seen people that you can never please. I can never do enough. And so ultimately, I can't control that. And in your broken relationship, you can't control how another person feels. Now, you might need to repent to that person for something, but you still can't ultimately fix that relationship. It's out of your control. What about this part? Maybe you're struggling with bitterness or resentment. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love is not resentful. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is your responsibility and, might I add, maybe the exact reason the Lord has you in this situation. No matter the outcome of the situation, you're responsible to respond in your heart in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. You can control that. In fact, you're given the responsibility to control it. Maybe you've responded with rudeness, with a distance that's inappropriate in your mannerisms with this person. 
First Corinthians 13, 5 also says that love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Ephesians 4, 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You can control how you respond to that person. You can make a decision on what to do. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God. You can be warm and kind regardless of what's coming back your direction. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs chapter 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink for you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So this application is very simple. Those things you can control respond biblically, respond humbly. And those things you cannot control commit to prayer and have your feet like the deers treading on the high places and wait and worship. God wants to use this trial to make you more like him and it is for your benefit. God doesn't ever waste a trial and neither should you. My experience as a believer in Christ, both as just a believer and as a pastor, has been that when I or another believer wastes a trial, the Lord tends to hit the rewind button. And let's just try this again. So I would rather learn the first time. I want to close with the clear admonition by James in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And here's the reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'll tell you what I very often tell counselees who are going through a time of waiting, time of difficulty, a time of trial, and that is this. Don't disappoint yourself by waiting until the resolution happens to have joy. Have joy first And then when the resolution comes, that's just an added bonus. And I have seen believers in my office, 30, 40 feet from here, weeping tears of regret and sorrow because God solved a problem in their mind too soon. What do I mean by that? Oh, I wish I had been peaceful. I wish I hadn't panicked. I wish I hadn't been so beset by anxiety. I wish I hadn't been so filled with fear and so filled with bitterness and anger. And the answer is right there. Oh, I wish I had trusted the Lord before he answered that prayer. I have heard that. And so I would encourage you, take that time of waiting as a gift from the Lord. Trust him. Learn to be content with what you cannot control. Amen. Thank you, Father, for our time tonight. What a glorious Lord's Day. We bless you and thank you for those who have professed faith in Christ and have demonstrated this in the waters of baptism. And we thank you and praise you for the ability to wait on you by worshiping, by being content with those things we cannot control. Might you be with every person here because everyone here is waiting for something. Give us the peace that passes all understanding and help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We pray these things for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen.